a young woman with a rare disease treated every week in Oakland with a drug developed in California's Bay Area has been told by ICE that she has 33 days to leave the country and without that treatment she will die. Meanwhile, a new TB drug is approved in the USA and makes activists uneasy. What these two news stories tell us about the human cost of farmer progress. Welcome to the second season of a Shot in the Arm podcast. Hey everybody, we're live! We're back for a second season of a Shot in the Arm podcast, and I'm Ben Plumley. This is where we explore how societies welcome or shun biomedical advances. Are they hurtling us towards a Huxleyan dystopia, or are we entering a new golden age of health? Well, we had a wonderful first season of 15 episodes. Some were recorded live, and the last three were video podcasts recorded at the International AIDS Conference in Mexico in July 2019. You can find a Shot in the Arm podcast at all fine purveyors of podcasts, and at Facebook, YouTube and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. This is the first of a packed second season where we will grapple with the greatest issues in global health and human rights, and on the way, meet leaders and influencers in drug research and development from around the world. And we're going to start this week with Maria Isabel Bueso. And I can't really believe I'm having to do this. This section is perhaps less of a podcast or a news item and really more of an urgent call to action. I was really moved at how Rachel Maddow on MSNBC last night covered this, and it's it's really forced me to reflect and, and reorder how we were going to do this podcast. Well, here's the background. Biomarian Pharmaceuticals and its academic partners around the US, including the UCSF Benioff Hospital in Oakland, in the very early 2000s, they began reaching out to people born with a very rare genetic disease, mucopolysaccharidosis, MPS6. And they were asking them to participate in a new clinical trial into an experimental drug. The condition is so rare that researchers had to scour all over the world to find people who could participate. And one girl, Maria Isabella Bueso and her family, agreed to participate the trial. Now, Maria is Guatemalan, and the researchers asked her and her family to move to the US, to the Bay Area in fact, so that they could have her participate in the trial. And it's, it's a complex trial. The drug was an experimental enzyme replacement therapy, the very enzyme that she lacks. And the drug trial Maria participated in received um, what's called an orphan drug designation by the US government, which, as we will see later in this podcast, allows for a, an influx of US federal funding and fast-track review. Now, in 2005, the US FDA approved this new treatment. Biomarin brought it to the market under the name Naglazyme, and in 2018, Naglazyme's income for Biomarin was 345.9 million US dollars. So, if not entirely a blockbuster, it has at least made a very decent return on investment for this treatment into this rare genetic disease. But let's be clear. Getting people with MPS type 6 to participate in clinical trials has been very, very difficult. And without Maria, 
Biomarin would have found its path to approval and marketing much, much harder. And not to put too fine a point on it, Naglazyme has kept Maria alive. She's been taking it every week as at a, as an infusion at the UCSF Benioff Hospital in Oakland under the care of her doctor, Paul Harmutz. Last week, Maria's family received a letter from the US government telling her that she had 33 days, literally, literally until the 14th of September, to leave the country. Well, she lives here, just up the road in Concord, as a result of Obamacare's or Obama's Deferred Action Programme. Uh, and that Deferred Action Programme allows immigrants like her to avoid deportation while they are having life-saving treatment. And yet now, just like that, without telling anyone at all, the Trump administration decided to terminate this programme and just sent letters to Maria and God knows who else. Now, all kudos to the New York Times, which piggybacked off local Bay Area and Massachusetts news outlets for bringing this to attention. And, and again, a shout out to Rachel Maddow, who not only aired a detailed analysis of the situation, but called on air for everyone to write to Fox News to get Fox to report on a case in the hope that the president might listen and take notice. Well, if you go to my Twitter handle, Shot Arm Podcast, you will find the call, retweeted regularly to every decent journalist we can find at Fox. And, you know, now's just not the time to make any comment about contradictions between decent journalism and Fox. So if you tweet, please retweet if you can. Please contact Fox. Contact Fox News' CEO, Suzanne Scott, who is supposed to be a decent human being and who regularly gives to children's charities. Please reach out to them and ask them to air Maria's situation and ask them specifically for the president to intervene and take Trump. Because while Trump's Department of Homeland Security, to which this ultimately rolls up, has set no information out about how this silent program uh, is going to be implemented. Oh, and by the way, Homeland Security doesn't have a leader at the moment. Its acting director is Kevin McLean. ICE, our dear friends at ICE, are responsible for the policy's implementation. Now, we managed to find that an agency spokesperson, Paul Prince, said that ICE reviews each case on its own merits and exercises appropriate discretion after re reviewing all the facts involved. And so that's why this outcry is even more important. Because Homeland Security and the two agents that report to it do not accept applications for reconsideration. They do not provide public guidance on what their process is for reviewing cases. So please, please call everyone at Fox News. A Shot in the Arm podcast is also joining calls to demand that every elected official in California weighs in. From the congressman in the very district that Maria lives our very fine Mark Paul de Saulnier, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Congressman T.J. Cox and Jerry McKerney, of course, our very own Congresswoman Jackie Spear here in uh, Merced Heights, and uh, leader, Nancy Pelosi, leader Nancy Pelosi. We're also calling on our senator and presidential hopeful Kamala Harris and our senior setter, Diane Feinstein. Please intervene. You will find how we can all do that, at our website, www.ashotinthearmpodcast.com, and I hope that you will join me and join thousands that have already demanding, started demanding action. Okay, so, 
Besides the disgust and moral outrage, there is a secondary reason for telling this story. Maria's treatment, Naglazyme, was developed by the small biopharmaceuticals company based in San Rafael, Biomarin, in the north of, Cal- north of California's Bay Area back in 1997. The drug was developed by the company itself, but it pooled science coming from a range of researchers, therefore presumably accompanying patents, including the University of Adelaide in Australia. Biomarin develops new treatments for life-threatening and rare genetic diseases in its portfolio besides MPS type 6. It has products for muscular dystrophy, rare cancers, uh, and sickle cell anemia. It's very much a niche, niche industry, and quite different from the grand diseases of global public health that we've been exploring in a Shot in the Arm podcast. But like many of the companies that develop drugs and technologies to prevent, treat, and diagnose global public health priorities, it relies on exactly the same kind of partnerships with academics to develop research concepts and compounds, and the same kind of incentives to bring these technologies to market. Which brings us back to the newly approved TB drug. So while all of this was happening... On the 14th of August 2019, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, approved a new TB treatment called pretaminid. And pretaminid is to be used in combination with other TB drugs and has uh, been approved to treat what's called highly treatment-resistant tuberculosis. Highly resistant TB is a curse. And it's appearing more in more and more frequently in more and more countries, particularly in the global, global south. And of course, these are the countries with the less immediate healthcare and financial resources uh, needed to tackle basic healthcare issues as well as treat TB. And you know, if we don't tackle highly drug-resistant TB, we won't just be sent hurtling back over a hundred years when. TB, or consumption, as they they called it in the Victorian era, was a terrifying commonplace killer. No, we will be entering an an entirely new era, where the TB bacterium has evolved far enough to defeat everything we throw at it. So think about it. And thus, a drug that effectively treats highly resistant TB, that should be good news, right? A new treatment one of the first new TB drugs in over 50 years, strong enough to eliminate even the toughest, most resistant strains of the bacterium. That's cause to celebrate, no? And yet, the news of Pretominid's approval reveals a deep uneasiness in the medicines access community about how R&D is incentivized. In commenting on the approval, Médecins Sans Frontières said it was premature to celebrate and that the TB Alliance should sell Pretonomid's voucher, its priority review voucher that came with the approval, and sell it openly and widely to the highest bidder. From this, it should use the proceeds to register the drug as rapidly as possible in all global markets and get generics to manufacture the drug at the cheapest, most affordable price. Well, what is a priority review voucher? Why does it matter? Over the last few decades, the government of the USA, 
has created all sorts of incentives to reward research and development into diseases that tend to be neglected. And the TB Alliance, I have to say, brilliantly exploited these incentives when they submitted uh, Pretonomid to the FDA. Firstly, they obtained a limited population pathway for antibacterial and antifungal drugs designation, something that Congress agreed in 2012. And Basically, it allows for the researcher to submit smaller, shorter, or indeed fewer clinical trials. The TB Alliance also obtained a designation as a qualified infectious disease product, and it also received an orphan drug designation, just like the MPS6 product. This allows the speeding up of approval timelines and critically allows for US funding to be sped on the development to be spent on the development but perhaps most importantly protonomid's uh, approval brought uh, something that will be really and will be really really key for the TB alliance and the broader field and that is to say the priority review voucher prv because the prv enables you to get fda priority review any other drug you may have in your research portfolio. Even better, PRVs, as MSF noticed, can be bought and sold. In fact, they have. In our last section, we spoke about Biomarin, and in fact, in 2014, they sold the PRV they had obtained with the approval of a drug to treat an even more extremely rare Morchio A syndrome, and they sold it for $67.5 million to the company Regeneron. So, Sell the PRV. That is exactly what MSF wants the alliance to do. In theory, MSF's request is but one of a number of options open to the alliance. We asked the TB alliance before going on air what their plans are for the PRV, and they said they're still looking at all options, and I get it. That makes total sense, and we'll keep you updated in, in the weeks coming. Options include holding on to it, Presumably, they could use it for another drug in their pipeline, but as they focus on TB treatment only, presumably those drugs ought to be candidates themselves. They could also uh, hold on to it. Um, and, oh dear, I, you know, this is a live podcast, and I've actually run through the, the spot where I was supposed to be speaking, but nonetheless, I'll find it again. Hang on, everybody. This is what comes from speaking live. Well, MSF's comment about the need for the TB Alliance to sell its PRV highlights an uneasiness. And it's an uneasiness, I guess, that I share. And it gives us invaluable insight into how policymakers, advocates, and others think about R&D in one hand and access on the other. Well, actually, how we don't think of them together, actually. And what this tells us is that the global access to medicines community might, might be very, very mobilized to promote R&D and might be very mobilized to promote access. But our efforts have been separate, inadequately connected, and we're now seeing the results. So if you don't develop a drug with plans already in place to provide rapid, expansive access from the moment you get approval, why should you benefit from these kind of incentives in the first place? That's something to think about. The other area I wanted to go to with this is 
Well, what are the kinds of priorities that we need, the areas that we need to look for therapeutic, preventative and diagnostic innovations for? In other words, what are our research priorities? Well, I think we can answer this question fairly confidently. I see four areas of primary importance. The first is immunology, or the functioning or not of our immune system, an area of clinical science where our understanding is all too medieval. I know this personally as someone living with severe Crohn's disease. Now that's caused by a dysfunctional immune system. But it also includes a range of cancers, uh, and cancer which the US National Institutes of Health defines as some of the body's cells beginning to divide without stopping and spreading into surrounding tissues. The second area of research priority, I would suggest, whether new or existing viral or bacterial pandemics. Regular listeners know that pan pandemics have been a subject of much debate on this uh, podcast, Ebola, HIV, and TB. And my view is that pandemics are the greatest health threat to humanity in the 21st century. The third priority area should be mental health. Like immunology, our understanding of mental health is still very much in its early stages. We know very little about it, how it is caused, how we treat it, how it relates to other diseases. This is something we will be coming back to in later episodes of the season. Our fourth priority should be non-communicable diseases, such as diabetes and heart disease. Sometimes we call these diseases of modernization as they seem to affect increasingly urbanized and industrialized societies. However, a question which bugs me, and again, we're going to have to come back to this in future episodes, is whether these four health priorities, are they increasing or are we just getting better at diagnosing them? Let's think for a minute about what we might exclude from the list. Well, Maria Boeso's story tells us of the importance of continued investment into R&D for rare genetic diseases, and I fully support that. But I confess I have mild to no interest in research in, say, shaky leg, shaky leg syndrome or skin-tightening technology for a uh, 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 a celebrity or pop star in their 50s. But if the side effect of investment in what we call personalized medicine is advances in the way we design and deliver new compounds in ways that could be helpful for us in other priorities, then yes, absolutely, right behind that, money well spent. And of course, having said there are four priorities, there is a different kind of priority which we might want to consider. It's an area where clinical research crashes straight into other aspects of technology and it's delivery. Whether computer-assisted, computer artificial intelligence or other designs of molecules for us to resource, research or electronic medical records and rapid, more efficient and more effective data monitoring or innovative ways of getting medicines and diagnostics to people. And, and you know, I'm thinking of Zipline, which delivers drugs and tests by drone, or, or even Facebook's blood donation campaign. We're at the start of a great new disruption in the way healthcare is provided. And I think that is as, that is as important as the kind of medicines and diagnostics we develop in the first place. 
I think we're going to continue to see exceptionally strong bodies of scientists and other researchers growing, perhaps more now than ever. And they're going to be coming from all regions of the world. It's worth noting that all major pharmaceutical companies have invested heavily in research hubs in South and Southeast Asia, and Africa's following closely. My point here is that as more and more brilliant scientists emerge in the global South, we can expect at least some of them to be drawn to the healthcare challenges around them. The same can be said of the marketeers. They will see local opportunities where existing businesses thinking and businesses think thorns. So this will only help to increase commitment and interest in global health. Will we change the way we develop medicines? I was going to say no. The pole star of preclinical, phase one, phase two, phase three, and onwards and onwards, well, that would continue to guide us, I thought. There might be some tinkering at the edges, but why would we change that in principle? We might get better at moving things from preclinical and phase one into patients, but the phases themselves would still seem to be the right ones. But now I'm not so sure. Let's go back to Protonomid. Its approval was based on preliminary data from a phase three trial of six months treatment and then six months follow-up of 109 or 107 patients, depending on, on which report you read. Now, over 95% of those patients were tre treated successfully, which is fantastic news. But the news for us here is that the trial itself was not a three-year or longer trial of thousands and thousands of people. It was basically a year of just over 100 patients. And it's an example of what is happening more and more in research and development. Now, there are significant obligations imposed on the TB Alliance by the FDA as they have to continue to monitor and evaluate the drug, but these come after the drug's approval, not before. And I wonder, in fact, whether we're going to see approval by regulatory authorities coming earlier and earlier in a drug's development. And as a society, we're going to have to become okay with that. And I think we might as we learn more about how classes of drugs respond to diseases and how they work in people, and as we ourselves have a better sense of how to monitor and work with participants in the trials. Now, one area where I am passionately devoted to dramatic change is in the use of animal research, animal testing in clinical research. When we hear presentations at conferences or we talk and refer to murine models or canine or primate models, Let's be clear. We're talking about mice, dogs, and monkeys. And in the cold light of day, I think it, yes, is fundamentally unethical, but it should be coming increasingly obsolescent. However, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the latest data we have here is that research on non-human primates, and just think about that phrase for a second, non-human primates, but research on non-human primates has actually increased, and in 2017, it involved 76,000. Now, the extremism in the advocacy movement opposed to animal testing is offensive, is dangerous. In fact, it's made the situation much worse, and there's a lesson for us in that. But my hope, the point I'm trying to make here, is that advances in technology will make animal testing increasingly unnecessary and irrelevant. And one moment that sticks in my brain is when lab colleagues in the Belgian town of Mechelen, 
or 10 years ago, shared with me their excitement at how the development of a new HIV protease inhibitor, which, by the way, is now a market leader, well, how that had been speeded by computer design. They, they literally designed, designed it so that the, the molecule would fit tightly into the virus and incapacitate it. We talked about the need for less safety and efficacy data as a, as a result from animal models, and I will never forget that moment. Yes, the wave of new drugs for people with HIV able to access them has transformed their lives. And yes, there is no doubt that animal lives have had to be taken to achieve this. But would I change this? Would I really? No. But it is a dichotomy I have to live with. And at heart, I believe we are better than this. And one of the things in my advocacy I'm hoping to do is, is that science will offer us a way forward and we must push for that. So my hope, and again, we will come back to this in future episodes um, of A Shot in the Arm podcast. My hope is that clinical trial design is actually something that is going through revolutionary disruption. Okay, so we have our science, we have our scientists. How do we pay for it? Well, believe it or not, the issue of public health financing has fascinated me all my adult life. Realistically, I see four options open to us. I'll describe what I think of them. But the bottom line is that we have to encourage, foster, and if necessary, force collaboration between these options. For a couple of years, well, more than a couple of years, I've realized, although I've not always been prepared to come out and speak about it, so to speak, but I've realized that the public sector alone will not set us free. There is no pretending that biopharmaceuticals have a private sector-free future. Now, I know this is going to make me sound like a real knob, but it really only hit me in the early 1990s that drugs were developed by companies and not the UK National Health Service. And yes, this realisation came as a result of being in the wave of AIDS activism that spread to the UK from the US. I dread to think how long it would have taken me to realise this otherwise. I was shocked and horrified, then tolerant, and then finally made my peace with this. And in fact, Profit has always been made in the field of healthcare in one way or another, since the dawn of recorded history. Even my hero, Nye Bevan, understood and incorporated the private sector into his vision of health for all. And the lesson to be learned from countries as diverse as Nigeria and Laos is that the private sector can be a force for good. It is a matter, as in so many things, of how societies control markets. So I'll just come out and say it. The first, and my preferred option for private sector, uh, for pharmaceutical leadership, sorry, is for the private sector to lead. Now, this is not a call for unfettered, unregulated uh, private sector biopharmaceutical research. I mean, who would want that right? Well, okay, maybe we will have to wait until after the US presidential elections in 2020 to be absolutely confident that we really mean that. But seriously. The whole point about the success of the pharmaceutical industry has been its integration with and its regulation by the, by the public sector. It has been one of the greatest successes of the post-Second World War period. What it does 
is to take exciting new scientific possibilities and translate them into market powerhouses. And it does that rapidly, and that is nothing short of amazing. But that is just the start of the story. The industry model was magnificent at developing and marketing new drugs for rich communities, where there is a clear path to market and the promise of rich financial returns. But that world, whatever the tribal populists try to tell us, is gone. That old private sector pharmaceutical model might have saved lives for richer communities, but it couldn't do the same for poorer communities. And note, we aren't talking countries here. There are poor communities in many supposedly industrialized nations. This is a lesson that the AIDS epidemic has taught us, and I think it is also true of the need for people from all parts of the world to participate in clinical trials for rare genetics diseases. What they've taught us is that we can't do it alone. Now, it is also true that many of the blockbusters that have made billions have had their origins in academic and public sector basic research. And some activists and journalists behave as if they have just uncovered this, as if it's some nefarious corporate behaviour. But let's be clear, pharma is not stealing from academia. This is a thoroughly established and mutual beneficial relationship, one that helps universities and allows the public sector to invest and grow their own and taxpayers' funds. And as we have seen with MPS6, it can get results. One aspect of the pharmaceutical funding model that gets overlooked very often is the role of venture capitalism. Now, I had some exposure to this and uh, the sometimes well-meaning and sometimes cutthroat world of East Coast pharmaceutical venture capitalism VC. It's fascinating to observe. They understand the value of long-term investments, but they also have an appetite appetite, how shall I put this, to, to push the envelope and see how far it will go. In recent years, there has been a new source of funding from Silicon Valley-based venture capitalism, which, at the risk of oversimplifying, appears to me to be less tolerant of failure. It expects clearer metrics with quicker paths to the market. But it, has, but it has also been victim of the fake-it-until-you-make-it alternative reality that has been best exposed by that very, very sad story of Theranos. Nonetheless, a, diet, a desire to do good, do it faster, with better results, is inherently good. And I think it has been a direct cause of the emergence of the Bay Area as a hub of biotech and global health. You can look at Genentech, Gilead, Chen Zuckerberg, and from the VC side, Third Rock Ventures. You can look at the NGO side, and you can look at Tech for Ending HIV. I'm looking forward to chatting with a pharmaceutical VC titan, Marianne De Becker, in a future episode of this second season. And none of this is to say that the biopharmaceutical sector does not need change. My gosh, far from it. A seismic reshaping of the industry's priority is desperately needed by its investors and scientists to pay for diseases that affect the most, not those most able to pay. The time is ripe. This is an industry in flux, and there's no question that in 10 to 20 years, this field is going to be very different. Will the Merckx and the Janssens be succeeded by the Apple Health or Google Treat or even Hunavat? 
Earlier this year, I facilitated a session on the future of global access programs at the Bio Conference in Philadelphia. It was fascinating to see the enthusiasm about the emergence and potential uses of new technologies. But it was also grimly fascinating to see the growing wave of anxiety, I'd almost say alarm, at, uh, at whether uh, investments uh, in biopharmaceutical could still make and allow for fortunes to be made. Well, ignoring global public health will not be an option. Our elected leaders and the taxpaying citizens who elect them will just simply not let this be the status quo. And in a little while, I'll show you how I think this will change. After the industry itself, there's a second option that's emerged over the last 30 years, and we call them Product Development Partnerships, PDPs. Now, these are non-profit, non-profit drug development agencies, and they have a very focused agenda. They look at particular areas of bioresearch. So, for example, malaria or TB or HIV prevention, areas where the traditional pharmaceutical model has not been incentivized to deliver. They have some, and some, sometimes perhaps not all of the expertise you would, you would find in a normal pharma company, and they contract or buy it in as needed. And they have been funded by some very strange bedfellows, including the Nordic and West European Ministries of Foreign Affairs. And, and those departments are the ones that usually house their country's overseas development aid departments. Pharmaceutical companies themselves have supported them, either with cash or with rights to develop compounds that they themselves have no interest in. And finally, they're supported by foundations, and one particular foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Notable successes of the PDP model are the TB Alliance, who we met earlier. Another is the International Partnership for Microbicides, IPM, which is bringing to market later this year a, a ring, a prevention ring designed for women in developing countries. Now, the PDP does the research, it takes the risk, and it commits to ensure, once the medication is approved, that it's going to be made as available as cheaply and as possibly and as possible in developing countries. And it can license the product back to the pharmaceutical industry for marketing in the developed world, and then hope to you know, gain uh, resources from royalties from that. So a virtuous circle, you might say. IPM is exploring a different regulatory route for depivirine uh, for its microbicide ring than the TB Alliance did with um, Pretaminid. They are going through the European Medicines Agency. And we shall see how things shake out later this year. But PDPs are not without their controversy. Do they really deliver? Now, notwithstanding the TB Alliance's success, the thing that has really intrigued me about them is precisely the range of funders, each of them with fundamentally different agendas. How does the PDP reconcile these? From the sidelines, I've got to say it has sometimes been maddening and other times hilarious to see how the leaders of these PDPs have had to navigate the management of funders' expectations rather than leading the research itself. It's been hard for the Gates Foundation, for example, not to remain a passive supporter and not become more actively involved in both the organisation and, impl and implementation of the organisation it supports. 
We may also be at the end of a historic moment when the resources available to invest in the infrastructure needed to develop single-issue compounds or therapy areas, that, that may be over. And maybe I'm wrong, but I fear there is a risk that PDPs may be going out of fashion, losing their shiny edge. And the big foundations, as we will see in a second, have moved on to their next shiny objects. But don't rule PDPs out yet. I don't think we would have a microbicide ring without IPM and its leader, Zita Rosenberg, and without the TB Alliance and its leader, Mel Spiegelman. We just wouldn't have that princely stable of TB compounds, of which protonamid is just one. So, a third option might be to take what is good from public and private sectors and then ram them together and see if we can make something better. So, so take the greed motive out of R&D without nationalizing the hell out of the infrastructure. Well, entities with such a mission do exist. Another giant of the Pacific Northwest comes to mind, PATH. But the one that I like the most is Medicines360. It's a non-profit pharmaceutical company run by women for women. And it has taken priorities in women's health that the traditional pharma sector just hasn't found compelling enough and brought them to market. Last year, Medicines360 obtained FDA approval for Liletta, a new IUD or interuterine device, which provides up to five years slow release of a patented contraception. I think Medicines360 is really one of the ones to watch. I hope it will shed light on whether this model is sustainable. I'm also interested to see if the model can be applicable in other public public health areas. And is it really a new non-profit pharmaceutical offering a new way, or is it just basically a different shade of the PDP model? Well, one of the drivers of Medicines360, which we need to keep our eye on, is how do they, over the medium term, continue to generate and nurture the kind of investors who are willing to front investments without the usual financial returns they come to expect. Indeed. So what about those investors? So this brings us to the strange but deeply influential fourth option. Foundations. Or, if we are being really honest about it, rich people who have been smart enough or lucky to be at the front end of the tech revolution. And the first, of course, that comes to mind is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now, it has spent $3 billion on global health to date. $3 billion, of which $1.6 billion has been generously donated to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. Well, this outweighs every single other private donation. And indeed, the contributions of many countries, shame on them. It is an incredible contribution. And I think, frankly, it has enabled the Global Fund to remain vibrant and alive. But it does beg the question, what has it done with the other $1.4 billion and what impact has that had? And for the record, the organization I used to run, Pangea, it did receive a few tasty morsels of Gates funding. What happens? When these individuals no longer make philanthropic contributions to existing nonprofits, 
but create their own research institutions. Well, it was only a matter of time before Gates set up its own biopharmaceutical research institution. And last year, under the leadership of Penny Heaton, who used to be at Novartis, it did. It's called the Gates Medicines Research Initiative, Gates MRI. Uh, And it's based in Boston. And the MRI's mission is to develop products for malaria, TB, and diarrheal diseases. Now, these are the ones that it considers to be the primary causes of mortality, poverty, inequality in developing countries. And you can debate that. What it is going to do is focus on transitional medicine. That is to say, getting medicines out of the laboratory and into human research. So out of preclinical and phase one well, out of preclinical and into phase one to use our pole star model of earlier. The person who heads the massive uh, health division at the Gates Foundation is Trevor Mundell. And Penny reports to Trevor. And Trevor actually also comes from Novartis. And Trevor was interviewed in Forbes magazine a year or so ago. And he made this very interesting comment that he compared the MRI, the Gates MRI, to a hungry drug company. but with success measured in lives saved, not dollars returned. And it's interesting that the MRI has centered on hiring researchers from pharmaceutical industry, not from academia. Well, back on the other side of the USA is the Chen Zuckerberg bioherb. Well, and Chen Zuckerberg explicitly partners with academic researchers. It's led jointly by Joe DeRisi of UCSF and Steve Quake from Stanford. And the lead person on pandemics preparation is Christina Tattoo, who we will meet in a future episode. So, on both sides of the Atlantic, both models newly conceived, let's see how they pan out. Maybe the future of global health biotech is going to be driven by charitable foundations and contributions from people who have made their fortunes in other business, business fields, but even their billions feel somehow inadequate. I keep coming back to Trevor's comments, Trevor Mundell's comments, that success should be measured in lives saved, not dollars returned. And I'm not sure I fully agree. No offence, but perhaps I would tweak it a bit and propose that future success will be measured on lives saved and therefore dollars returned. And assuming that Western liberal economies are able to defend their democracies, I think that our politicians, driven by voters, will demand a rebalancing of R&D access and financial returns. And those three things, it seemed to me, R&D access and financial returns, are inextricably linked. Precisely because the number of those dollars is going to be very, very much less from what is currently expected from the returns of financial investments. As I look back at my 25 years of experience, we need to come back and revise the models we nervously, perhaps self-consciously, and inadequately created in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And I want to propose that we make global public health the heart of the biopharmaceutical industry, and I know that's going to set much laughter from many, many people. But we need to create new social compacts, where governments are investing much, much more in the health of their citizens. And as they do that, it will incentivize private research into the, into the diseases that really do affect the majority of the world's people. And in return, 
expecting and, where necessary, legislating that the industry and its investors will accept a lower, though perfectly acceptable, rate of return. So that's higher volumes and lower prices for a much wider range of diseases in patients in countries and markets that had previously been ignored. Now, I know that won't be easy, and it will mean some major restructuring, but not the kind of overwhelming disruption and um, decline that some fear and others relish. And okay, it may well mean some short-term decline in the overall size of the market. But as some of the participants in March's bioconference in Philadelphia observed to me, something like this has to happen. The social compact that I'm referring to is not a given. It is not inevitable. Perhaps we may muddle on as we are with, with a pharmaceutical industry with the pharmaceutical industry pressured from all sides to reduce prices, reduce costs, maximize maximize profits, but invest in drugs for markets that don't provide profits, while the rest of us hustle a little bit to get some of the funding we need from corporate contributions departments, taxpayers and philanthropists. No, this will be a world that will please no one. And I do think that a revitalized social compact is very possible. In fact, I really do think it is the only option in front of us. I know politics and healthcare are, healthcare are inextricably linked. I didn't really cover drug costs in this episode because I really wanted us to focus on naglazyme and pretonamid. We will come back to drug costs in future episodes, and I promise this will be with a vengeance. At the start of this episode, we talked about Maria Bueso's bravery and the appalling absolutely disgusting situation that she and her family find themselves in. When Mr. Trump's immigration hatchet man Stephen Miller trolled through the various deferred actions that previous administrations had rightly implemented over the years, I bet you he didn't think that repealing the uh, deferred action for life-saving treatment would actually send a cold chill down the back of the USA's leadership in biomedical research. But that's exactly what he's doing, as well as threatening the lives of the people who have helped us. So, again, I do hope, regardless of any political affiliation you may have, you will consider joining me and countless others in demanding an end to this madness and a reinstallation of the Obama-era Deferred Action for Life-Saving Medicine. Well, we're coming to the end of this live stream. You know, I wanted to end with a quote by Margaret Atwood. Her sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, by the way, and it's called The Testaments, is so tantalizingly close to publication now. I think we've got a day to wait. Or I could have got a quote from Nye Bevan, or Aldous Huxley, or Joyce Bander, or Marina Mahatir. But I'm drawn to Paul Janssen, the late Belgian pharmaceutical researcher and pharmaceutical tycoon. And, and in my head, why does global health always come back to Belgium? And in fact, Maria Bueso's story makes his comments all the more powerful. My colleagues 10 years ago back in Mechelen often referred to Dr. Paul and the challenge that he threw down, not just for pharmaceutical researchers and executives, but for all of us. He said, there is so much more to be done, the patients are waiting. The patients are waiting. There is so much more to be done, by all of us, more now than ever. So then, 
Let's stop assing around and get on with it. Well, that's it for our first episode of A Shot in the Arm podcast season two. Thank you to NewsDoc Media and our director and producer, Eric Espera, who, by the way, I happened to get married to earlier in August. Thanks also to NewsDoc Media's intern, Will Lansdale. Thanks to New Order, the pioneers of English alternative electronic music, whose track, Bizarre Love Triangle, had my entire family on the dance floor at the wedding. Yes, including my mother. And yes, there are photographs. And finally, thanks to you, our dear listeners. Thank you for supporting us and energizing us to create a new season. And remember, if you like this kind of content and want to, be, want to hear more, be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and spread the word. You can find us on all social media, on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at Shot Arm Podcast. Until the next time, you are a shot in the arm. <laughs>